Hi, this is Austin from the Strong Indie Podcast. Thank you for joining us for episode 007. I know Justin Harder is very disappointed that he was not able to say that. This is a live podcast recording from our event held at the Tube Factory Art Space on February 19th with Brad Bobian, who is the Director of Long Range Planning for the Department for Metropolitan Planning here in Indianapolis, and Sean Northup, who is the Executive Assistant Director uh, for the Metropolitan Planning Organization. Uh, Enjoy this podcast as we talk to our two very special guests and take questions from the audience uh, about land use policy and how that can help Indianapolis build better communities that are are sustainable in social, environmental, and financial terms. Uh, Thank you again for joining the Strong Indie Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Strong Indie and the Congress for New Urbanism Midwest, feel free to visit strongindie.org and cnumidwest.org. Thanks again for joining us. All right, so my name is Brad Bobian. I am the administrator for long range planning for the Department of Metropolitan Development at the city of Indianapolis. And I'm Sean Northup. I'm the deputy director of the Indianapolis Metropolitan Planning Organization, which is the regional transportation planning body for central Indiana. And so you'll notice I'm not Jessica Thorpe, who was originally going to be here. Jessica Thorpe has moved on to bigger and better things. Um, and so I um, am substituting uh, for her. Hold up, really close. Yeah. All right, let's see how this goes. And so. Um, Tonight, um, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about kind of the evolution of city planning. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on where we were um, because that wasn't, I wasn't around for that and so I can't do that story justice, but I will talk a little bit about uh, where we've been um, and then Sean and I really want to focus on where we're going because that's really the exciting stuff that we think about. And so um, I've been with the city about five years. I came over in 2013, I think. And when I started over at um, DMD leading the planning team, um, I was, I'm I'm charged, my team is charged with implementing the thing called the comprehensive plan. Now in planning school, the comprehensive plan is this mythical document that contains the the plans and the vision and the dreams of a community. Um, In Indianapolis, it's not a document. Um, It was 135 plus documents developed over 40 years. And so that was um, initial challenge that I had come into um, I also started right after we cut half of our long-range planning staff, and so terrible time to start a new job, um, but it forced us to really ask some hard questions. What can we do? What should we be doing? How do we keep up with a system like this? And so we started doing some focus groups and interviews and just doing some analysis about what does our plan look like. And the thing that we came away from is we had tons of different plans. They all had the same types of content, but the content was never linked together. And so neighborhood plans would have land use and park recommendations, park plans would have those, corridor plans would have vision and values and transportation recommendations. Um, And so in order to understand the city's transportation plan, you literally had to open up 135 different documents Um, And sometimes they were from 1979, and other times they were from 2014. Um, And so it was very hard to understand um, what the city's policy um, and plans were. Um, I remember remember you saying that where you lived at the time, you were covered by several different plans. Do you remember what that story was? So there were, there was, and the, the case, depending on what side of the street you're on, you might have a plan from 2014 the others, your neighbors across the street would have a plan from 1979, and those are the those are the 
plans that the city zoning staff are, are using to make recommendations. And so um, in, in 1979, you know, we didn't have things like these. And there's just so much uh, evolution that has happened in society and our city um, that our plans were not reflecting. And so that was kind of the challenge that we came in with um, of how do we um, resolve that. And so that kind of came uh, to where we're at. And so I've spent a lot of time making this animated PowerPoint, and so I like to use it as much as I can. Um, but the idea was that we probably shouldn't be maintaining 135, 150 different documents that all have the same types of content. We should probably take out those system content um, and put them in system plans. And so instead of having 135 chapters for transportation, we bring all those into a single plan. The same with land use, the same with parks, um, that, those types of things. And so the idea was that we have um, these six or seven different master plans that talk to each other. And so that, that blue gear in the middle isn't really a thing, it's just an idea um, that when any one of these master gears gets updated, um, it probably has implications for the others. And so as um, a city, we can probably maintain six or seven master plans better than we can maintain 135 different geographical plans. And so um, that was the concept. And over the past five years, we've actually updated all of these. Um, and so with the, with the exception of resiliency, and so that is Thrive Indianapolis, that goes up for adoption on uh, Thursday, as uh, Austin mentioned. And so um, it's pretty exciting that we have we've been able to make um, these big moves. Now, the, 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 the master gear there at the top called Vision and Values, that's the thing called the Bicentennial Agenda. So that was a um, kind of the poster child that came out of our Plan 2020 effort. The yearbook. The right. yearbook, and the so yearbook. it resembles a yearbook. Um, I, you, you can blame me for that, that yearbook look. <laughs> um, but the Bicentennial Agenda was the, was the Vision and Values piece, and so that's the, the overarching kind of where the city wants to go. There's lots of aspects of that, um, dealing with people in place. Um, but for your interest, the thing, the, the big idea that really came out of that um, about the future of Indianapolis and Marion County is that we are a city of villages connected by trails, transit, and waterways. Um, and so we started thinking about what is a village, and we've got maybe six villages today. And so you think of Irvington and Broad Ripple, um, places like that. We've got emerging villages, um, such as Garfield Park here. And we also have legacy small towns scattered around um, the city, Wanamaker, um, down in Franklin Township, uh, places like that, that would have had their own mayor fighting for them and championing for them had it not been for Unigo when we consolidated the city and county um, decades ago. And so we've got all those special places that have these urban bones. Um, and the idea is that those are the places where we might concentrate investment, we concentrate density. Um, those are the places that bring the single family neighborhoods that surround them some value and some meaning. And so that was kind of the, uh, a big policy statement about our, the future of our city is, is really that. Um, it's not necessarily the seas of subdivisions that we um, had been focused on um, previously to that. Now, Moving into land use, um, our old land use system, we've, before we updated it um, last year, our land use system had something like 250 different classification systems in it. Um, and so that's challenging to administer, that's challenging for us to administer, but it's certainly challenging for neighborhood residents who don't deal with this stuff every day to administer. Um, another aspect of it was it was very discreet. And so we said that 20, 30, 40 years from now, we know that this piece of land is going to be for this specific use. Um, especially when it came down to residential. 
a lot of our residential neighborhoods were carved into very limited density thresholds. And so in this case, this is a, um, an old plan for the Near East Side called the High, Highland uh, Brookside Plan. Um, most of that neighborhood was recommended for two to five dwelling units for, per acre. That's not the neighborhood that exists today there. That neighborhood has never existed, but that was, that's what the plan recommended. Um, and so if you wanted to put, um, if you wanted to rebuild the neighborhood that was there, it actually doesn't meet the plan. You'd have to rebuild it, half the houses, half as dense as it, as it was. Um, and our entire city was painted that way. And so we had very discreet, especially in the neighborhoods, especially housing. Um, that, in some areas, created areas of, of a lot of wealth. Um, if, you can, if you can limit land use to very, to very large lots that require very large houses, you can start influencing who lives in your community. Um, the opposite of that um, is that you can also use the planning system to exclude lots of people from our community. And so, um, whether by design or not, um, our planning system helped reinforce the concentration of poverty that's been going on over the past few decades in our city, just how we classify neighborhoods. Um, and so that's, that's a big challenge that we um, started seeing with our system. Um, and the reality is, I am a city planner. There might be some mystique and some science behind that, but I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you 40 years from now what a piece of land should be. I don't know. I just don't have that type of information in front of me. And so we had to come up um, with a different type of system. Um, and so we came up with this thing called the Marion County Land Use Plan Pattern Book. Um, I know some, I recognize some faces, and so I know some of you have um, read through the pattern book and been trained on it. Um, it's a completely different type of system, but I will tell you it's not unique um, in America. It's where a lot of cities are, are going. Um, last year's um, uh, best practice plan from the American Planning Association came out of Oklahoma City. They used a similar system to this. And instead of saying this specific property is going to be a house between two and five units per acre, we say, no, this area is going to be a neighborhood. And in a neighborhood, you might have houses, you might have row houses or townhomes, you might have apartments, you might have neighborhoods serving retail, you might have schools and parks and, and places of worship, things like that. Um, all of that stuff fits in a neighborhood. Now, we know that not all of that stuff um, goes um, everywhere. And so we said that even though all of that stuff might be recommended in an area, um, we have conditions attached to each of those. And so, for example, this is kind of a, a, a poster child for, for good urban design from a neighborhood. You've got single family attached housing and apartments and multifamily kind of all working together um, like we all believe that, that they should. Um, but the, the way the pattern book works is it says um, along this BRT corridor or along this major street, um, apartments belong. And so apartments belong in the neighborhood, but they need to be on a, a street that can handle the traffic and handle the capacity of that increased density. So it talks about context. Um, and it does the same for townhomes. So it might, townhomes may not belong everywhere in a neighborhood, but they are places around parks, all around greenways, all on collector streets, around things like that um, where they might belong. And so it uses those types of conditions to organize uses within those typologies. And so it provides a similar level of guidance um, but it's less subject to kind of gerrymandering of, uh, of, of land uses. Um, again, we say in this neighborhood, you can have a variety of housing types. Um, if you're an urbanist and follow City Lab and all those articles, uh, Minneapolis has got a, a lot of attention lately about eliminating single family zoning. 
Um, they actually haven't done that yet. I, I believe that they will take that step, but what they've done is they've taken it out of their planning system. We did that too. Um, and so in the Marion County land use plan, planning system now, there are no longer single family only neighborhoods. Um, we're saying that how is that people belong in neighborhoods regardless of what type of house um, they choose to live in. We use rational planning arguments about traffic and infrastructure availability and things like that then to organize the uses. And so that is, that is a game changer um, as far as um, how our neighborhoods are more organic. It's not just neighborhoods. We also do this with commercial districts, with industrial districts to some extent, um, and we do have mixed-use districts and more and more mixed-use districts in the system. Um, and so that was, that's, that's been a game changer um, in our system. <clears throat> and so that has laid the framework to kind of where we're going. Um, and so this graph um, is from MIBOR, the Realtor Association um, in town, does consumer preference um, surveys periodically, and this is from one last year. Yeah, where's he at? <laughs> yeah, he's over there. <clears throat> and so MIBOR does this fantastic research um, that asks people in our existing central Indiana market, what types of places would you like to live in if you had a choice? And so these are the numbers that come back. Um, and you can see, and this is broken down by kind of generation, and so you can see um, the mixed-use suburb market is hot. Um, that's why you see Carmel doing city center and arts and design district. That's why you see Fishers doing nickel plate district. That's why you see all of our competitors in the burbs around us densifying their suburban cores, because that's a really hot product regardless of age. Now, the exciting thing is, um, Sean, do, do we have that product in Marion County, Brad? So we, we struggle with that product. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of, the, that'll be the rest of the story this evening. Um, now, people under age 35, which is a, a lot of um, you, um, are the people that are starting to buy houses. So they're starting to set the market um, for what people are, are, are demanding, what people are building, and things like that. And so when you just look at what younger people want, um, they want mixed-use cities, um, they want to live in neighborhoods in cities, but they also want to live in mixed-use um, suburbs. And so those are products that Indianapolis can, can build, can fight for. Um, we've got plenty of suburban-only housing in our county and around us. That market's saturated. Um, we actually have a few small towns left in southern Marion County, but they're um, being encroached upon by some of that suburban development, and clearly we're not a rural area. And so these are the, really the three products that we can compete with and attract um, future. And so this is going to be the, the last slide we show, and we're going to sit on this for the rest of the evening. Um, but when you look at Marion County, so we have a 403 square mile city. Um, let me get my numbers so I can remember the exact um, numbers here. Um, currently, our inventory of walkable places is about eight and a half square miles, and that's defined as places that have a walk score of greater than 60. Now, walk score is not a perfect metric, but it's kind of the best thing that we have. It's a good indicator. And so of those 403 square miles, for those people that want that mixed-use living, we've got eight and a half square miles today where it's provided. Now, most of that's downtown, so that's the core of the city. When you look at that suburban market, suburban walkable mixed use, uh, which is the hottest market, uh, we've only got three and a half square miles of that. And so think of Broad Ripple, Irvington, Meridian Kessler, um, possibly some extent um, Garfield Park here. And so um, when you think about supply and demand, we've got an extremely limited supply of a very hot product. 
Um, and so when you start looking at property values, when you start having concerns about displacement and things like that, um, this is why. We've got extremely limited supply and a very high demand uh, regionally for that product. Now, we've also got this thing called BRT coming in. And so thanks to Indigo, we've got uh, red, blue, and purple lines um, on their way in the coming years. And so that actually opens up the opportunity um, to start thinking about how do we transform areas around BRT stations to support that demand, to provide that walkable mixed use. Um, and so within 400 feet of all the BRT stations in the city, we've got about 13 square miles of land in play. Now we've started to take a look at that and about half of that is not going to change. And so it's parks, it's downtown, it's single family neighborhoods, it's things like that. And so that means we've got about seven square miles of our 403 square mile county where we can actually, it's, 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 it's a precious commodity, right? We've got a very limited amount of land um, that we have to get right. And so that's why, so where we're going over the next year or two um, is this thing called transit-oriented development. Sean? Right, so the MPO has been stepping in to help kind of assist the city and assist Brad because these are regionally significant areas. We are able to use um, our region's planning funds for a regionally specific product. Um, this fits the bill as much as anything else does. Um, and so a couple of years back, Brad and Jess came to us and said, um, we have this really good idea. We want you to analyze the land around the BRT stations and figure out what's at risk of becoming something that's not good for transit, right? I, I don't need to recap the benefits of transit-oriented development with this group, right? Like, it promotes more walk trips, promotes more transit trips, stable transit ridership, lower air quality, uh, lower emissions, more public health, uh, higher value per acre. You have to use less pipe, less concrete to actually serve people. Um, it's undersupplied and over-demanded, which means if we're going to have equity and uh, get people to the transit lines. It's very, very good. Two other points worth noting. Um, when we have uh, outside groups come and look at our region, we always show up as one of the most affordable housing markets in the country, number two in the top 35, uh, but the most expensive place for transportation. And when Center for uh, Working Families looked into it, they found that transportation costs at the household level were the single expense that were most likely to keep families poor, right? So close to half of our population is making less than $45,000 a year. Uh, and they're spending disproportionately uh, high amounts of their income on transportation costs. And we know empirically that that gets better when somebody lives within walking distance of a 15 minute headway route. So one of the things that I always wanna point out when we talk about transit um, is that it, we're not just talking about the red line here. The red line is, is the thing that's gonna trigger the opening of the system. Uh, because the red line is requiring a lot of infrastructure work right now. Um, but what Indigo is doing right now, what our community has pulled the lever on and decided to say yes to and fund to the tune of nearly half a billion dollars, um, is much, much more than that. So a third of that half billion dollars is actually going to build an all-the-time frequent network grid across the county. So what this is doing is saying Indigo has been cut and cut and cut and cut over years, and what they've had to do to keep service on the street is shorten their hours. So they have a different Saturday and Sunday schedule than the weekday schedule. They have three different schedules right now. Um, and they've cut transit routes in the evening and on weekends. 
And so as the service gets worse, fewer people decide to use it because people are more or less rational actors making decisions based on what's available to them. And so people are, use, people are using it less and less. The people who are left using it, 78% of Indigo riders, are people who have no other viable alternative to get to work. Most transit trips are work trips. Now what's really insidious about that is the people who are taking it to get to work more often than not are a part of the service sector. Service sector employs roughly half of the workers in Marion County. So when we go out to dinner after work or out on the weekends, that's when those folks need to get to their jobs and that's when transit service stops running so that we could keep transit on the street during the eight to five hours. This new plan changes that entirely, flips it on its head. As a precondition of this new Marion County Transit Plan, first thing we did was expand hours of service to 20 hours a day, seven days a week. One schedule for the full system, seven days a week. So for somebody who was working a swing shift, uh, somebody who was working a Pacers game, transit didn't exist for you. It still doesn't today, and it didn't exist to you before the referendum. But as of this fall, when it opens, all of a sudden transit will be an option for people that live close to transit lines. So that time feature we can't show on a map very easily, but it's critical. The second piece is, is frequency. Frequency is freedom, is the Jarrett Walker term, right, which we always kind of land on. We had two lines in our system up until a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we had two lines in our system that were running 15 minutes or better. 15 minutes is critical. That's the point where you can transfer and it doesn't ruin your day. That's the point where you don't have to think about the schedule anymore. You just walk out and get on the service and go. We are now going to take the entire historic city and cover it with a frequent grid where you can get to any other point on that frequent grid uh, with a very, very simple transfer, which means for the half of the population um, that really, really needs this, they can get to work on time now. And if they miss a bus, they can still get to work on time just by waiting for the next one. So it's a transformative change far, far beyond just the red line corridor. And I would add the blue line and the purple line service is going to go into place too uh, at this year. And then the lines will be built out later on. So all that being said, uh, we wanted to look and see what was at risk of not contributing to this kind of whole connected uh, walkable story. And so we started looking at uh, the zoning code and said, okay, what zoning classifications allow things that don't contribute, like gas stations and uh, self-storage facilities, things where people can't do things and walk and be people. people, things where you have to be in a car. It's designed for you to be in a car. So drive-throughs and a whole surface parking lots, a whole range of uses like that. And what we found was every square inch of the BRT lines, everything that was not zoned residential was at risk of becoming one of those things. One of those things, at least one of those things, in most cases multiple of those things, are allowed in every non-residential district in the city that we have. So if you have a BRT stop, we allow a gas station there, or we allow self-storage facility, right? Because people are moving, empty nesters are moving back to downtown but not getting rid of their stuff. So we have massive demand for self-storage in Marion County and more often than not, they're going on these BRT corridors because, another insidious thing, these BRT corridors, which in almost all cases used to be streetcar corridors and centers of community, for the last 50 years, as we've been experimenting with auto-oriented planning, have become back of house. They've become the edge of every community that we've just kind of neglected. We've treated it as infrastructure and sewer, and that's where we put all the undesirable uh, car-oriented stuff. 
So what we were finding is four primary things about TOD that are big problems that we need to solve uh, in Indianapolis if we're going to get serious about making that seven square miles equitable and accessible to as many people as possible. So we can leverage this half billion dollar investment. One, bad stuff is allowed absolutely everywhere. Every BRT stop, all 100 stops, bad stuff's allowed. Number two, good stuff isn't allowed. In fact, it's really, really hard to do good stuff. If you want to put parking behind or build taller or build at a higher density or build to the street with a deeper sidewalk setback or build with certain architectural characteristics, that's going to cost you a year or two years of holding cost on a project. We've seen it happen again and again and again in projects in Broad Ripple and downtown where it's tough to get those things approved. Downtown, which is the best zoning district we have right now. Um, third, we have very, very limited supply. So every time we lose uh, one acre site to a used car lot on East Washington Street, as happened, or a half acre site to a gas station, as has happened twice on the blue line in the last, in the last year, um, it really eats away at that seven square miles. I guarantee you it's less than seven square miles since we did this math just a couple of months ago. It's now less than seven square miles. And we're gonna have to wait for those properties to turn over and that's gonna be uh, several real estate cycles for sure. And then the last point is that this is an invisible problem. This is something that unless you're watching land use policy at the city level or watching individual property owners or watching the TOD areas, you just don't see this. Uh, this is a very tough thing to get people's attention kind of focused on. And so we're working together with uh, the city, with Brad's team, um, and with Indigo. And Indigo and the city just went in jointly and got a uh, $400,000 grant from the Federal Transit Administration um, to help address this issue. And we're all partnering on it um, to try and figure out what the, what the right next steps are. We're taking a whole bunch of steps uh, to address it right now. We're going to send um, the current planning team, which is the team that approves or recommends approval or denial um, of zoning variances. Um, we're gonna send them to other cities that have done this. Usually when other cities pass a referendum like we did, they go ahead and redo the entire zoning ordinance uh, to account for the BRT lines. That didn't happen here. Uh, we made changes through Indy Rezone to the ordinance, but not actual changes on the map. And so that's one of the fundamental problems we have is that we've got these mixed-use districts that were designed for TOD, MU3 and MU4, that we have to somehow unlock uh, and get onto the map, make available to people to even ask to get them on the map. Right now, that's not even an option for most property owners to come and do that. So that's, that's pretty central to what we're talking about. We're finding that there's a, a large uh, business case to be made here, a large equitable, uh, equitability case. And so we're going to be kind of coordinating all of those parties to, to figure out the logical next steps. That's all I have. Happy to take questions unless you have Yeah, let's have a, this is a fireside chat, so let's chat. Yeah, absolutely. So um, here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to kick off the question and answer session, and I already see at least one hand come up. But what I want each person who asks a question to do, you don't have to do this, but I want you to name your favorite street in Indianapolis. What, what is your favorite? What do you love about it? Um, so my favorite street is Georgia Street in downtown. I love how that was redone, and I love how pedestrian friendly it is. Um, there's a, a lot of work to be done with it from an uh, activity level on the sides of structures, but overall I think it's a very pleasant experience. Um, but one thing that was mentioned earlier in the presentation was uh, a city of villages and a city of neighborhoods. Um, 
indie once had a lot of that. We had a lot more than the five or six neighborhoods that have really these walkable village centers now, Fountain Square, Garfield Park, Broad Ripple, Meridian, Kessler. Um, and you can still see the, the remnant, uh, I hate saying shells, but that's the best word I can think of for it at the moment, um, in places uh, like at uh, Central and 30th, I believe. Um, uh, and there's also... Uh, uh, what am, uh, Station Street out on the east side. Um, there are a lot of these places. So, so how can we, through this land use plan and through other uh, other methods, kind of bring these neighborhoods and walkable centers back to life, so that way the people who live in these neighborhoods have access to their essential needs within walking distance? Can I add to that, and then you can answer that question? Sure. So, I, I think another kind of Jarrett thought that I like to hang on to. So Jarrett Walker is, you know, who I learned a lot of transit planning from. Um, but all cities are oriented to some transportation, right? So society kind of builds itself around ports or railroad junctions or highway junctions. It just so happens um, that most of the inner city infrastructure, the neighborhood walkable community infrastructure that we love built up around transit. Right. And so in, in Indianapolis, a lot of those places that are that are shells or that are vibrant today were part of the interurban uh, network and, and aren't really there by chance. And in fact, many of these neighborhoods actually function best uh, when they're catering to people on foot or bikes or scooters, um, because it's much easier to design to the human scale when you're designing for a person and a small thing than you are a person and a two ton thing. Um, so I just wanted to point out that that, that inner city infrastructure that, that we love grew this way. And, and you know, transit is a, is a major stimulus to neighborhoods, we know from many, many places. And so how, as far as how do we rebuild or build uh, village centers, we've got a couple programs going on right now. So Great Places 2020 is a collective impact partnership the city's a part of. It's really led by um, local initiative support corporation, LISC, um, and that is all about um, either rebuilding or building new urban villages um, that support the single-family neighborhoods um, around them. And so um, that's going on on the city's um, side. We have Lift Indy, and so that's a program that uh, we're now in our second round um, where we're concentrating lots of our federal um, community development dollars that we have in a single place. And so the first place that we concentrated in on was 16 Monon, and so 16 in the Monon um, area. Um, and the second place is the old south side, so kind of just up the street um, a little bit uh, from here. And so those are all efforts to really concentrate um, resources into building places, not simply building affordable housing or just not simply building economic development opportunities for, for families, but putting all that all together. And so those are a couple places. Now, all of those are really in the traditional core of the city. Um, Indianapolis, Marion County has really not had to face what to do with the suburbs that are within our boundary until fairly recently. Um, and so that's why you look at across our, our borders and you look at Carmel and Fishers and um, uh, to, to some extent, uh, Brownsburg is starting to play this way, uh, Green, Greenwood south of us certainly. Um, they are all starting to see, they're seeing these same numbers and they're seeing that the way that you revitalize suburbs is by providing that urban core that provides that anchor, that amenity that gives value to the single family neighborhoods around it. Um, that is something that we are just starting to, to, to play with. And so we have, um, um, yesterday we also kicked off um, the Castleton revitalization plan. 
Um, and so Castleton is one of those places that has not hit bottom. Um, it's still got a pretty stable market, but you can certainly see as you drive through there, um, there are signs of decay. Um, and so rather than wait for it to, to bottom out, we're really trying to get in there to think about what does it mean when you have a second street connecting um, our focus on the White River with the Nickel Plate Trail um, that our partners to the north are really spearheading. Um, and so what does that look like um, when you've got REI and Gander Mountain and um, you know the bike shop and all these kind of outdoor facilities, recreation facilities, um, next to those great amenities? Um, Castleton used to be a small town. If you look at some of the early maps of Marion County, Castleton would have had its own mayor. Um, right off of 82nd Street where the, where the, the trail, the, the rail crosses, um, there's a street grid if you look at the aerial photography. Um, that street grid still, is still there. So that's a place where we have um, bones um, that we're starting to think about what does a, a major retail, regional shopping retail center like that, how do we transform that um, into something um, that's more sustainable, more, more viable, more market responsive um, today. And I think if we, can, if we can take a place like Irvington Plaza, that's right next to the Strong Market and, and, and Castleton, which is a mega shopping center, if we can figure those things out, um, I think there's lots of things in between um, that we can take those tools and replicate. Awesome, thank you very much. And I saw your hand come up, so you can come in here and tell us your favorite street and your question. I guess I'm gonna say my favorite street is probably Bona Avenue in Irvington. Uh, I just love the, the houses and the small stores that are there because that was probably the historic downtown of Irvington back in the day, and be ni it's nice to see that come back. Uh, I guess my question I have is, and I guess I should probably describe this for the podcast audience that'd be listening, looking at your chart on Marion County of not walkable or uh, near transit-oriented development is, you know, let's round it about 380 square miles. And that's a lot, obviously, of Marion County. Um, in the future, Obviously, the red line, uh, the blue line, and the purple line are going to be the, the current BRT uh, systems for the near future, but I'm going to assume that the system is going to eventually expand. There may be other BRT lines in the future that are just maybe dreams presently, but do you think that as uh, other lines eventually get developed that it could help uh, expand or shrink that area of non-walkable or non-TOD so that it can be more of an urban core mixed-use uh, development that would help with uh, the desirable market aspects that people are looking for. Oh, certainly. And so, you know, that gold area of TOD area, you know, the more stations we have, the, the bigger that gets. Um, now, it's not a one-for-one -one trade because, like I said, there's some places that are just not going to change, and so um, we're limited. Now, I will say... Um, going back to, to the land use plan in, in the pattern book, and I, I mentioned that every one of our typologies is in some form or fashion mixed use. Um, we've also, in, so we, we still have density thresholds um, in there. I, I couldn't quite get rid of them. Um, that can be phase two, but we still have density thresholds. Um, so even in the areas that are in, that fall within this blue, not walkable or TOD currently, um, our plan at least enables a, a greater mix of uses, a greater mix of housing types to happen 
which is the necessary ingredient to bring transit. And so transit isn't going to go to these areas without that mix of land uses. Um, Sean will say that transit's a market enhancer, not a market maker. I don't have to say it now. <laughs> um, uh, I, would, I would add that uh, the big blue box is maybe a little bit deceiving um, because what's on that far right side is 10-minute frequency busway. If we look at the frequent grid that Indigo is building, which right now is tiny, it would actually consume more than a quarter of that box. So more than a quarter of the rest of the land use is going to be on a, on a frequent grid, which is 15-minute headways, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, which creates all sorts of opportunities if our land use uh, ordinances actually allow TOD to happen there, as they don't right now. So if we can find a way to take the mixed-use three district, the MU3 district that we have, which was designed uh, to be walkable urban neighborhoods around a frequent grid, not necessarily at a bus rapid transit station, um, we could expand the potential walkable area by a lot. And this is direct neighborhood investment, right? This is a resource to neighborhoods in Indianapolis that have been resource poor for 60 years. So this, that would be one big thing. The, the expansion question always gets a little bit tough. I think um, Indigo is going to be hiring a new GM in the next couple of months. It's a great question for that person. It's going to be really hard for Indigo to raise revenue again. Um, I don't know how much capacity there is. I don't know how much legal capacity there is to raise income taxes. Um, but at some point, the difference between what Marion County residents are paying in tax and what the suburbs are paying in tax is going to become a big issue. I think Marion County is probably going to have to wait for some of the suburbs to raise taxes for transit or other stuff. Uh, which it sounds like several of them are about to do, like for police training facilities and, and jails and schools and things like that. Um, so that's, that's a really tough uh, question that's going to be another, you know, multi-year discussion. The one issue I've always kind of taken with the Marion County Transit Plan, um, uh, you know, which I helped write, so it's an issue with myself. But like um, 10th Street has always been the missing bus rapid transit line. 10th Street is going to be running at 10-minute frequencies. It's an incredibly high-density uh, corridor. It's an incredibly important corridor to Indigo. Right now, it's the second most productive route on the system after the 39, which is East 38th Street. Productivity takes into account length, right? So uh, 10th Street is a really, really critical corridor. And now that it's going to be running straight across and kind of connecting um, to considerably more, um, I think that we can start to consider the opportunities along 10th Street as well, although land use patterns there are very, very different than they are on Washington 38th or the north-south route. And my final commentary on um, that will be a lot of that not walkable or TOD are existing built-out neighborhoods. Um, we've recently up, we've created the city's first transportation plan that we've ever had, so Indy Moves. I don't know if any of you participated in those processes. We removed tons of, expan of roadway expansion projects that we do not need and should not have as part of that process, replaced it with lots of um, trails and off-street paths and sidewalks and bike facilities um, and things like that. Um, but even with all of that, we will never have the resources to, make, to, to convert that entire blue area to green. That's just uh, the, the reality. And so the market doesn't want you to. The market wants, you know, half of the space for single family, low yeah. density stuff. And so, again, we go back to that, the, the village anchor providing the value to what's around it is, is the strategy. And so there are places within that blue that we can start chipping away um, that are where the greenways and the trails and things like that converge, where the land use mix um, um, is right, and that is the village center for some of our outer townships, some of our outer neighborhoods. 
um, to address some of those walkability areas in that blue. Super, thank you. Who's next? Oh, wow, there are many more hands. Um, you started walking already, so we'll, <laughs> we'll have you come up. I have a very easy, quick one for any amateurs in the room. So my name is Andrea, and my favorite street is Meridian Street. Cliche, maybe, but um, can you explain to me what TOD means for anybody that doesn't know and any other jargony things like um, BRT? Just yeah. a quick lesson. Absolutely. So TOD is transit-oriented development. And so I mentioned before that all development is oriented to some transportation and that in inner cities it tends to be oriented toward transit, right? So that's um, that tends to be more walkable. It tends to be taller in some cases, not all. It tends to have less parking. It's designed for people to walk to the buildings and walk to the transit station, not for people to park cars in front of where they're going, run in, run back out to their car and go. It's oriented for people to get off of a uh, transit system and, and walk there and go. These places are in incredibly high demand. H nearly half of the real estate demand nationally is for these type of connected, walkable communities and it, we only serve like 15% of that market nationally. We will never overbuild TOD in this county, in this region, or in this country. It's just not going to happen. And demand is only going up. It's, it surpassed half of demand just in the last couple of years. Um, so it's, it's a housing type that we don't build today uh, very well or very often outside of just downtown Indianapolis and Broad Ripple for the most part. Uh, we occasionally see proposals elsewhere. Um, but it's very, very good for uh, transit for all the reasons I listed earlier. Bus rapid transit um, is a classification of transit service. So when we're saying BRT, what we're talking about is using a bus to emulate all of the services of light rail. Right, so the experience is just the same of any light rail system you might have gone to before, where you walk to a platform, the bus pulls up, there's two sets of doors, the doors open, people get off, people get on, takes off and goes. The entire process takes 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. Uh, it's level boarding, so you can roll right on and roll right off with your wheelchair or stroller or bike. Um, it has a fare uh, collection service ahead of time so that you, you pay at the station at a kiosk or you have a pass and there are fare inspectors on board who will check it. Um, in our case, it has transit signal priority and where necessary, it runs in a dedicated lane so it doesn't get stuck in traffic, which is a really critical piece to making sure that that vehicle shows up on time and runs a regular schedule. Um, the more you can separate transit from traffic, the more reliable it's going to be, the faster it's going to be, the more people are going to use it. Um, the more you can make with a bus, you can emulate all of the characteristics of light rail service, the more money you save, right? So the red line um, is gonna cost us $97.5 million, all in, contingency included. Um, and that's gonna go, what, 13 and a half miles through the city uh, and run at 10 minute headways. Um, past you know, one in five employees in the region are within walking distance of the, of the red line. And um, in Detroit, they just built a streetcar line downtown uh, at a price of $150 million for two and a half miles um, that runs in mixed traffic and uh, stops when there's a traffic jam on Woodward. Um, so we're getting considerably more bang for our buck. Um, I often joke that the state legislature did us a huge favor by banning light rail for this go around uh, because 
the income tax that we were allowed to go for in the referendum was not enough to build out the bus network that I described earlier that was critical to this plan working uh, and all of the rapid service that we need to have uh, to support um, development and the high density corridors that we already have in our city. Um, so there's the primer, BRT and TOD. Awesome, thank you. Um, you can come up next, I promise I'll get to you. <laughs> My name is Beth. My favorite favorite street is Lincoln Street off of East. Um, so you, if you're out there, you'll see people on their front porches, but there's also a coffee house and school and a park. And it's just glorious. Um, my question, though, is what factors go into creating the walk score? And then second half of that is what can I, in my neighborhood, be doing to help increase that walk score? Open a bunch of shops. <laughs> yeah, so, so Walk Score doesn't ne actually necessarily know walking infrastructure. Um, so it's taking data sets like Google Maps. Um, it uses things like street crossings and so how small the grid is. Um, how, how easy Shorter blocks are more walkable. Shorter right? blocks are more so walkable. So the more crossings you have, um, the better. Um, and you need places to walk to, and so those are shops and businesses and parks and libraries um, and things like that. It should be called proximity score, right? Because it, it measures from a given point how many things you can walk to. Um, they've, they've revised it lately. They have what's called street smart walk score, which takes into account the grid and, and the presence of some trails that show up on Google Maps, uh, but not much else. So if you really want to improve your score, you need to open restaurants and libraries and hair salons and um, things like that close to where you live. Or, you know, when we moved to Indianapolis, I think a lot of people that have moved to Indianapolis have had this experience of like, where do I want to live? Do I want to live downtown? Do I want to live on the near east side? Do I want to live in Irvington, Broad Ripple, or do I want to live on the, the west side, right? And so like, I didn't, we didn't look at the south side. I'm sorry. We lived in Greenwood. We didn't want to do it again. Um, and so, so, we had, so we had this kind of similar conversation to what a lot of people have who want to live in urban Indianapolis of which of those places do we want to go. Well, a bunch of people, myself included, and a majority of the market, according to the MyBoR survey, are deciding based on where those services are, right? So a high walk score is a good indicator of people are going to want to live there because they want to live close to those services. And it's why I live within walking distance of a gym and three grocery stores in Broad Ripple. Yeah, and so I, I mentioned that walk score is imperfect. Lots of those indicator scores, park score, even the definition of food deserts are really biased towards um, the bigger cities, the bigger metro areas where there's assumptions like if there's stuff to walk to, that there's sidewalks to walk to them. Um, but it, it is the best sort of, th of score that we have, um, certainly to compare um, neighborhood to neighborhood and metro to metro. But improving your walk score doesn't necessarily make your neighborhood more walkable. It's funny, it's one of those chicken or the egg things. If you want to make your community more walkable, trails and uh, sidewalks and connected bikeways and things like that are a better use of time but won't affect your walk score very much. All right, yes. <laughs> Um, so my name is Danielle, and um, my favorite street is actually East 10th Street because that's the neighborhood that I serve. I'm an AmeriCorps VISTA member with the Indies Promise Zone. Um, but my question is, what are some things that we can do or are happening in order to mitigate some of the people that have mindsets like NIMBY mindsets, or not in my backyard to avoid the jargon, um, the people that um, 
really are opposed to having these stops near their homes um, that can kind of prevent or deter expanding these opportunities uh, in their neighborhood. So every city in the nation in the world has NIMBYs. Um, it's just a fact of it's just a, a, a fact of who we are. And so um, the the secret in planning, and this may not be a secret, but this is it's, it's this way in politics too. But we respond to who we hear from. Um, and so typically. Um, what you might call NIMBYs um, are better organized. They might have more resources. They have more time. They have relationships with city county councilors or you know other pol people, politically elected officials. Um, the only way to counter that, and we pr we've you know facts only go so far, right? Um, and so, it, in in my mind, we have, and this is why I love groups like Strong Indy. Um, some of you participated in a program of ours called the People's Planning Academy, which was an attempt to grow um, some initial grassroots leaders, but we need additional voices in the process. And so that's participating in planning processes that, that I run, that we're gonna be running for TOD. Um, but that's also showing up at zoning cases, zoning hearings, um, and um, in, some, in some cases when it reaches uh, things like the city county council, when ordinances and issues come up there. Um, those elected officials need to hear voices other than the NIMBYs. And so, you know, the YIMBY movement, we need YIMBYs is, you know, to, to kind of counter out the NIMBYs. And that's... We, we just need a more representative public dialogue, right? So, I mean, we looked at the, the vote results from uh, the transit referendum, and the strongest support for the transit referendum was on North College Avenue, where all of the opposition came from, right? And so it, it's... Our system is set up for squeaky wheel gets the grease, and so... You know, we we are not going to advocate. We are public employees. We can get up here and share data and best practices and silly things like peer-reviewed studies. But the course of action that we will take depends on the public dialogue that happens at the city level when these cases come to the city or, or not, <laughs> right? In cases like where a gas station is just allowed to happen, that never comes to the city. There's no opportunity uh, to, to stop that or speak up. I try to not be dismissive of NIMBYs offhand because uh, they have sometimes, um, or at least to, what, to them, what feel like very legitimate concerns about privacy and about uh, traffic and about parking. Like those are kind of the, the holy triumvirate, the unholy triumvirate of like new development of like you're going to generate more traffic because there's going to be more people coming here. Uh, you're going to have a parking problem because more people want to get here and we already have a parking problem. Uh, and if it's going to be a tall building next to my single family house, then like you're going to be looking into my backyard and I don't want that. I bought, you know, this house to not be around a tall building. So, you know, those are, you can't just dismiss those concerns. Designers have to adjust for them all the time and developers have to adjust for them all the time. Um, so that's, I think that's a worthwhile conversation. Now to the extent that it stops development entirely from happening, I think the pendulum has probably swung too far. We, we literally just need a more balanced dialogue, a more representative dialogue. And if you're really passionate against a project, you're much more likely to show up and speak than if you're really passionate in favor of it or if you don't know about it. So just pay attention and be a part of the conversation, I think is the, is the call. So my name is Brian, and I would probably say Virginia Avenue is uh, one of my favorite streets. So Sean, I want to pick up on what you had talked about earlier. If you 
proposed a solution that I missed. I apologize. But you talked about how some of these lots that are adjacent to BRT, like the red line, for instance, that's coming, um, nothing is set up currently to prevent really bad development from happening there. Um, Correct. In our current system. So what? How? what's the proposed solution there, especially as this is getting ready to come online very soon? And then what can neighbors do to help make sure that quality development's going in those places? So I'll actually take this as the city guy. Um, Not my jurisdiction. Yeah, it, the MPO has zero land use authority. The city has all of it. And so uh, Sean mentioned um, when we did Indy Rezone, there are two new mixed-use districts that were deployed um, in that that were opened up that were not mapped, uh, mixed-use 3 and mixed-use 4. Um, those were intended to be our TOD zoning. Um, and so two years ago, um, we did pilot processes to create a mixed-use district in the international marketplace around a much long-desired um, international village that's been uh, talked about out there, um, as well as at 22nd Meridian Street, so right on the transit lines. So we tried a suburban model and an urban model. Um, and we discovered that the tool that we thought we have uh, really is, is hard to deploy. Um, I won't get into details of that, but it just doesn't work in, in as, as we need it to. Um, and so knowing that, we've, so we're regrouping. Um, and so there's a couple um, ideas um, that we're tossing around, but the key things that we know we need to do, um, and we've got a sense of urgency. Again, that seven square miles, to Sean's point, we're eroding that every day. Um, and so there's a sense of urgency. Um, and so what can we do quickly? Um, the, the first thing we have to do is is remove bad uses, non-contributing TOD uses. Um, and so if at least we do that, we're half the way there. At least we are not squandering you know, generations of opportunity to, to take advantage of that precious seven square miles. And so how you do that, um, in our current zoning code, we have um, what we call use-specific standards. Um, but you might, um, you might uh, uh, there are certain land uses out there that we have buffer distances. And so a methadone clinic, for example. Everyone, every neighborhood loves to have methadone clinics in their heart, right? No, so we have th like a thousand foot buffer between a, a residential or a school district and a methadone clinic. And so we might imagine that perhaps we have buffers around some of these um, kind of the, the worst offenders as far as inhibiting TOD. That's one option um, that, that, that could work. Um, and that doesn't involve a map change. Um, that's just a text uh, change with the, with the ordinance, right? Um, uh, we have precedents um, um, in, in the downtown area for um, overlays. And so downtown, we do have design guidelines, um, and that's through a, a zoning overlay. And so there's your base zoning district, and there's something on top of it that provides additional guidance. And so that uh, might be something um, that works. Um, it could be that we revisit the MU3 or the MU4 or something in between um, and revisit those, and perhaps there's ways to open that up. Um, one of the challenges with the MU3 and 4 as designed was that the city had to lead the rezoning. And so they had to be multi-property um, areas, 20 to 40 acres of land, that the city actually had to rezone. Um, we just do not have that, that history. Um, uh, and so the idea that we would take 65 people's properties and rezone potentially against their desires um, it's just not something that's a reality here. And so um, maybe there's a way, though, to unlock that mixed-use three so someone could ask for that rezoning um, themselves and rather than having um, the city impose that on them. And so we, we know that we at least have to remove bad uses. Second, we want to encourage good supporting uses. 
Um, and then beyond that, we know that we've got parking um, requirement challenges. Um, Indy Rezone did introduce parking maximums in some areas, and that's probably something that we need to look at for, for TOD. Um, and then once you get down below parking, then you start getting into design guidelines and some things like that. But if we can take out somehow, some way, the bad uses add the good uses, um, we will go a long way in protecting what's left of that seven square miles. So, so what can you do? Just be a part of that process. That's a public process. It's those changes, um, everything that he just mentioned is going to have to go through city county council. So be a part of the dialogue. It's a very generic call to action that I feel very comfortable making. Just make your voice heard. Yes, you have an additional question. Hi, so my name is Jill Danielle, <laughs> and my favorite street is still East 10th Street. Um, but speaking about parking, is there any plans to have parking for people that don't live within walking distance of a BRT route that is going to be developed? Nope. Yep. I mean, nope. <laughs> so there's uh, the BRT lines are uh, taking up a very little precious bit of land, and we're not going to devote uh, huge swaths to park and ride. Park and ride is being replaced almost everywhere it was built in the 1970s um, by development. So our efforts can be better be spent building the most valuable land in the city uh, to higher density, higher value stuff than parking. There's opportunities to park around BRT. There's underutilized garages, there's street parking, there's surface parking everywhere, and more being built. Um, so there's gonna be plenty of opportunities to park and ride informally. Great. How many people still have questions? We'll probably, we'll probably have to make this the last question of the night. I want to be respectful to Big Car's time, so. I just had a question about uh, Hallville. Um, that area right there in the uh, west side downtown, uh, with uh, 16 Tech coming into the area, uh, what is your guys' predictions for the development in that area? versus what has historically been the issues that, you know, underprivileged, uh, high crime type of situation. That, Hallville's a tough one, right? Like, it's, so Brad makes fun of me about like, <laughs> transit's a market enhancer, not a market maker, right? Hallville's gonna get a lot of transit service. Uh, West 10th Street, West Washington Street, Indiana Avenue to 16th are all going to be uh, frequent lines. 15 minutes or better, 20 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's gonna be a lot of transit service place in that area, a lot more east-west than north-south, unfortunately. Um, but that's just kind of the way the cookie crumbled. We, we had limited resources. Um, I will say that when the, the red line goes in on the north side, we don't need to worry about a lot of non-contributing development going in along the red line because it's the strongest market in the entire region, right? And so property owners and developers value that land more highly. Uh, and already have options along the property to build higher density, more walkable stuff in that one corridor. It's everywhere else on the network that I'm most concerned about. Um, and Hawville's not really on the frequent network to the extent that it's off of Washington Street. Um, it's not really on the BRT network, I'm sorry. It is on the frequent grid though. So there's an opportunity to leverage transit to do something. Is this enough to be transformative for Hawville? I don't know, 16 tech is a big X factor. So I read your question as a gentrification question. Is that accurate? The topic of gentrification and displacement is probably an entirely um, other panel. Um, and so I will try to answer as sh sh concise and eloquently as I can. Um, we do have concerns about places like Hawville, about places like Riverside, 
um, because of the amount of economic activity that's um, proposed. And the same for the valley around the GM stamping plant. So those traditionally working class neighborhoods, um, um, in some cases traditionally African American neighborhoods, uh, we have, uh, there's a lot of development pressure. Um, and there's only so much a city government can do to control that. Um, we have traditional tools, and so we have, uh, we have local as well as federal community development dollars that we can pump in um, to neighborhoods to preserve affordability. The challenge is there's timelines attached to that, and so those affordability periods uh, burn off, and those, that's, that's, that's federal um, guidelines, not ours. Um, the state has preempted what's called inclusive zoning, um, and so we cannot um, say, uh, if you build this new development, you have to set aside a, a certain percentage of that for affordability. The state has said across Indiana, you cannot do that. Um, and so we don't have that tool. What we do have um, related to that, though, is where we have money in the game. Um, and so that could be in the form of tax increment financing. Um, that could be in the form of our, our federal dollars. Um, while we can't condition a zoning approval based on affordability, we can, we can make that choice that if we're gonna invest public dollars, there has to be public benefit coming out of it. Um, and we have done that um, um, in, in more recent cases. And so uh, Mayor Hogsett has really made the, the priority that if the public dollars are gonna go in there, there has to be some sort of public benefit. And sometimes that's affordable housing, some that's, sometimes that's increased design or public amenities like parks and some things like that. And so um, that is one tool where we, um, but our tools, um, are really limited to the, the, the money that we have in the game. Um, we, we can't use zoning controls um, to do that. Now, there's, if you think about Meridian Kessler, Meridian Kessler, if you think about Meridian Street, so I forget whose street was, Andrea's favorite street is Meridian Street. So Meridian Street is where all the, the, you know, the, the millionaires of the day lived, right? And probably still do, right? Um, but that's where the bank presidents, you know, the big, the big, commercial um, owners were at. If you move a couple blocks in, um, they're still very nice houses, um, but they're not quite to that level of Meridian Street, right? And so that's might be the managers where they live. On the side streets, there's still little bungalows, right? And so that might be where some of the, the office workers, or the bank tellers, things like that. By the time you get to college, that's where you start getting into duplexes and apartment buildings and you know apartments over retail. Within that single neighborhood, you had an incredible diversity of incomes. Um, and that's because we built neighborhoods with different types of housing. And so going back to the land use plan, the fact that we are allowing different types of housing to coexist um, is one way that we can hope, we can't guarantee it, um, but we've certainly from policy level, we've unlocked the ability to have more affordable townhomes next to maybe some more expensive single-family homes. Um, and so that, those, that's just a, a couple tools that we have. Um, but I will say this, this is important to us. This is important to me personally. Um, I've got a whole other presentation about the history of racial planning in, um, in our city. Um, race and income are so intricately linked um, in America, but especially here in our city. Um, that we have to figure this out. Um, and it's, it's hard when we don't have that zoning tool. A lot of um, states have used that zoning tool to lock down that affordability. 
Um, and so we continue to explore the, the tools that we have. And so that's money in the game, that's making sure we don't discriminate by housing type. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much. So uh, in, the, in the respect of time, so that's going to be the last question that we take this evening. Let's give uh, Brad and Sean a round of applause for them being here tonight. And let's give an additional round of applause to Jim Walker and Big Carford being so generous to host us this evening. So thank you all very much for coming. Continue to follow us on social media. If you have any additional questions, feel free to reach out. Thank you again. Have a great night.